Heavenly Father, we have gathered here this morning to, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And in that truth, believing with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength that Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, did in fact come to earth and become a man that you might be known and that we might be reconciled to you through his death. I pray, Father, this morning that you would give us that simple faith, that childlike faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we might truly know you and in knowing you, worship you properly. We praise you for this testimony. We praise you for uh, the work of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas as they made their way through this region sharing the gospel for the, with the lost. I, I thank you, Father, that you have gathered us here in this place, in this time, um, that we as your people might worship you well too. Um, if there is lack of clarity, Lord, make it clear this morning. If we're unsure who you are, make yourself known perfectly so that we might be a people who worship you well. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified during this time, that this would be your time. As your word is proclaimed, I pray that you would bless, um, bless me, a sinner, to proclaim it faithfully, and bless my brothers and sisters to receive it properly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hmm. You, you, I hope you never get tired of hearing people healed in the Bible. Every time you do, every time you experience the Holy Spirit doing a work on someone physically, that's to reveal the spiritual healing that we all have an opportunity to experience through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, that's not an easy teaching for us today, and I would say not one that's well known either. Um, as of 2018, uh, the Pew Research Institute, they did a massive study trying to evaluate what the religious landscape of America is. 90% of Americans still believe in some higher power. As of 2018, that probably hasn't changed much. 90%. Now, as soon as you get beyond that binary question, is or is there not a higher power or God or gods, then the numbers begin to diversify quickly. 56% um, say they believe the higher power is the God of the Bible in some form as they interpret the God of the Bible. The other 33% believe in some other higher power. Now what's ironic in this study, 20% of those who profess Christ, profess to be Christian, do not believe that the higher power is the God of the Bible. I don't know how that's possible. The other 17% who are classified as nuns, those with no particular religious affiliation, they do believe that the higher power is the God of the Bible. Needless to say, we are very confused inside and outside the church as to who this God is. People are not certain of who or what they have put their faith in. And yet Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 tells us what? Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. And so this struggle that most people have is not does God exist? Most people believe that there is a God or gods or higher power. The, the struggle is who is he? Who is this God, this higher power? And, and for the Christian, we know, we believe that God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when you ask yourself, how can, how can I be certain of my faith? How can I be more certain than the Muslim is in their faith in Allah, or the, the Hindu is in their faith in Shiva, or the atheist is in their faith in science? How can I as a Christian know 
who God is? And that is, by the way, that's the right question. It's not whether or not God exists. That's not a thinking man's question. The right question is, who is he? Who is he? Well, the God of the Bible, he answered that question definitively by sending his son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the holy triune God, to earth as a man. He answered the question, who am I, so that we might know. And that means, my beloved, that as Christians, your faith, oh, praise God for this. Your faith is not based upon a philosophy. It's not based upon a human doctrine. It's not based upon your imagination of what you would like God to be. Your faith is based objectively on the revelation of God the Father through the Son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. In history, in time, God making himself not only known, but accessible. Not only known, but accessible. And therefore eliminating all confusion as to the question, who is God? God's answer that it is Christ. And therefore the Father, through the Son, made the Son the supreme revelation. Right? You want to know who God is? Know the Son. You want to know how to get to God? It's through the Son. So Jesus Christ, the God-man, makes God known, and he makes God accessible. And if that isn't good news... I don't know what is, my beloved. If that isn't good news, that Jesus Christ makes God known and makes God accessible, then I don't know what good news is. This morning, I would like for us, I would like for you to examine your faith in light of Paul and Barnabas and their evangelical encounter in Lystra. And by God's grace, I would like your, your faith when you leave here today to be strengthened, that you can say, I, I am sure of what I hope for and I'm absolutely certain of what I cannot see because God's made himself known to me in Christ. And at the same time, I want us to be very, very careful knowing how easy it is for Christians to allow idols and false gods to cause us to turn away, just as we see here in this passage. So I want to do that this morning by looking at three things. One, a healing faith. Number two, a foolish faith. And number three, a personal faith. A healing faith, a foolish faith, and a personal faith. And when I say personal faith, I don't mean your personal faith. Of course, that's necessary. I'm talking about a personal faith in the person of Jesus Christ. All right, you ready? Don't, don't look tired on me. I haven't even, I've just started here. Come on. You can't look tired yet. I haven't, if you're tired in 10 minutes, then that's on me. If you're tired now, that's not on me, right? I can't take credit for this yet. Theme of the sermon, Jesus makes God known and accessible through faith. That's it. Jesus Christ makes God known and makes God accessible through faith. Point number one, a healing faith. So if you've been following the story with us, Paul and Barnabas, they flee Iconium. They have to because they're going to be killed. They stay as long as they can. They get word they're going to be executed. And so they flee and they go 20 miles due south to Lystra. Now, Lystra is still in the Galatian province, modern-day Turkey. Um, But it's not a city. It's a rural town. It's a rural community. And so when they get there, um, there's no synagogue. And, and you've already seen the pattern. They go to the synagogue, they preach the son of David, Jesus Christ, and then they make it to the Gentiles. Well, they start here in the marketplace. They go directly to the Gentiles to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And immediately as they're preaching and proclaiming a crucified risen Savior, there's a crippled man there. And you, you hear crippled man, you know what's going to happen, right? Don't let that diminish the power of the story. Look at verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. Verse 9, he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, verse 10, said in a loud voice, Stand up 
upright on your feet, and he sprang up, and he began walking. And so, again, the extreme nature of the man's deformity. He was crippled from birth. We get detail. Luke tells us there's something wrong with his feet, and he hasn't walked a day in his life. That's how he came into this world. It's very reminiscent, is it not, of the, of the healing that Peter exercised in Acts 3 at the beautiful gate, remember, that that man was begging for food and, and, and received mercy by being healed as well. Um, most cripples in the first century, Mediterranean culture, um, they required, required upon mercy to live day to day, the mercy of people and the mercy of God. So this man is likely in the public square. He's looking for food, looking for a handout, but he gets a lot more than a little bit of money or a little bit of bread. Look at verse 9 again. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing what? That he had faith to be made well. In other words, he had, he had believed the gospel message. He knew Christ. So what does Paul do? In a loud voice so everybody can hear, he says, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. Paul transfixed on this man's face. And... and I have no idea. We have no idea how he knew this man believed, but he knew this man believed, certainly through the Holy Spirit, that this man had come to an understanding of saving grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And no doubt, the Apostle Paul, in testifying to the work of Christ, talked about Jesus' earthly ministry and how he gave sight to the blind and deaf to the hearing. And oh, by the way, crippled man, he could heal the lame man so you too can walk. He certainly heard that. He heard about the sinfulness of the human heart and the need for repentance to faith and how through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, a sinner like this man could be saved through faith. And so while preaching the sermon, um, not distracting at all from it, Paul sees the crippled man sitting and he sees that he had faith to be made well. In other words, this man in that moment came to an understanding that he had a much greater deformity than his feet, that it was his heart. In listening to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, certainly Paul talked about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of the heart and the need for repentance and faith in Jesus. And so this man came to see that and he put his faith in Christ and received the Holy Spirit and therefore experienced what? Real healing before his feet were ever made well. This man was already well and he could sing, it is well with my soul because he now knew the Lord. Now the Holy Spirit thought this is a fantastic time for me to testify to the glory of Christ by healing this man's feet too. He already knew the Lord. Now why not add a testimony to the gospel and the power of the gospel by healing his body? Look at verse 10. Paul said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. Stand upright on feet that have never been used, never walked upon, not one day in his entire life. Why? So the authority of the gospel, the power of the gospel could be manifest amongst all those in Lystra. All those, listen, they had never heard of this Yahweh. They had never heard of this Jesus Christ. And yet they could see the power of the gospel by this crippled man becoming well. Standing up, it literally means when he stood up, he sprang up, he leapt to his feet. He, he jumps up. I mean, if someone's going to tell you to get up and you have never walked, you're going to get up. And he did. He sprang and he started walking. In other words, it was an undeniable miracle. Everybody present knew unequivocally something supernatural had taken place. Now, my beloved, this man and you have much in common. He was born physically crippled. The Bible tells us that we are born spiritually crippled. 
that we are sown in iniquity in our mother's womb. Unable to know God, unable to worship God, certainly unable to walk in obedience to God. But the Bible also says that all that hear the gospel of grace, just like this man, all who receive the mercy that comes through a broken body and shed blood of a Savior, they can be made spiritually clean too. That we don't have to continue in this life bound to our sin. That we don't have to continue moving through life, living in accordance with our own desires and our own selfish, self-seeking purposes. That we can stand upright and we can follow Christ. Not on the flesh, but in the Spirit because the Spirit enables us to do that. It was the door of faith that opened up this man to healing. Spiritual healing in Christ and physical healing of his faith. And it wasn't just any faith, my beloved. It was faith in the person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, that made this man well. I would argue, maybe you'll disagree, but I would argue this man was truly blessed to be crippled from birth. Truly blessed. You say, well, that's terrible. He spends his whole life begging for mercy so that he can live on a daily basis and receive food. He needed to have mercy from man and needed to have mercy from God. And I would argue, my beloved, in our day and age, that is a, that is a missing characteristic of our hearts, even as believers. We, we live in a culture that sees mercy as either a sign of weakness or something that's convenient at certain times in our lives, right? If you get pulled over by a police officer, right, you, you beg for mercy, Lord, please, let this police officer not give me a ticket, right? You want mercy in that moment, or maybe when you don't do so well on a test or your midterms or your final, and so you go to your professor in their office hours and you beg for mercy, right? You say, give me another chance. Can I do some extra credit work? Um, but our culture generally does not see mercy as an absolute necessity for our daily lives and certainly for our, our eternal hope in Christ. Um, we don't see ourselves like that tax collector in Luke chapter 8, 18, remember when he went before the temple? He stood far away from the temple. And this is the, the record that we have from Dr. Luke. He would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Like that's, that's what faith does. It causes us to see that every moment of every day, here and for all eternity, we are in desperate need of God's mercy. I would say in our cultural moment, we're more like the Pharisee that was standing right beside that tax collector in Luke 18. The tax collector, the Pharisee, the Pharisee prayed thus, God, I thank you. He probably even pointed that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The Pharisee said, I, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. He'd put his faith not in the mercies of God, but in himself, in his own goodness. Instead of putting our faith in God's mercy to make us well, we often do the same thing, don't we? We may not point at a tax collector, but we put our faith in our intelligence or our degrees or our income or our marriage or our children, whatever it is for you, and you stake your claim on that until that fails you, and it will. We first must see, before we continue the story, that we are just like this crippled man. He believed in the mercies of God through faith in Jesus Christ and he was healed spiritually and physically. That same promise, that same healing promise 
is given to us as well. So point number one, (laughs) there is a healing power to this faith in Jesus Christ. But I would argue that even as Christians, and if you're a mature Christian, that there are times when your faith gets off off the narrow road. You begin to look and put your trust in things you ought not. Point number two, a foolish faith. So the Gospels proclaim this this man is healed spiritually, he's healed physically, and it does produce, it produces a faith in the crowd, but certainly not the faith that Paul or Barnabas were hoping and praying for. Look at verse 11. When the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying, and like Onean, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So what, what happens here? They see truth. They see the undeniable fact that this man who had been crippled from birth, who could not walk, suddenly could walk without medicine, without a a medical doctor, he suddenly is healed. But instead of the people rightly giving glory to God the Father through God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit, they fall back on what they knew best. And what did they know best? They knew their Greek gods. They fall back on their old religion. Zeus and Hermes, they thought, must have come down from Mount Olympus and blessed us with their actual presence. Look at verse 12. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now, my beloved, listen, if this weren't such a serious sin, and it is, this is, this is fantastically humorous in part. Right? I mean, the very thing that Paul and Barnabas are trying to do, trying to teach the gospel to these pagans to turn them away from their idol worship and to the living God, what does it result in? It results in the very people now lifting them up as though they are gods and wanting to worship to them. You know, I couldn't help but think of Return of the Jedi and C-3PO, remember that scene? with Remember the Ewoks? You know, they're going to they're gonna execute, they're going to offer as a sacrifice, Luke and Han Solo, and CP3O, they think, is a god, right? So it's, it's not humorous, though, because they were misled as many of us were before we came to know Christ. According to Greek mythology, the, the Olympians, they were the race of deities that made up the, the gods of the Greek pantheon, and they were the ones who overcame, if you remember, in that tenure in the mythology. Make sure we're talking mythology. This is story time now. Um, they were the ones who supposedly overcame the Titans. And Zeus was, their, was their, their, the king of the gods, and it was his siblings that had taken power. And Hermes was considered, this is fascinating here, Hermes was considered the herald or messenger of the gods and oftentimes presented as the son of Zeus, the messenger of the gods and the son of Zeus who would come and speak on Zeus's behalf. So in, in light of the miracle, Paul's doing the talk and he must be, he must be Hermes and, and Barnabas, maybe he was a larger man, he must be Zeus. This was their conclusion. They believed it. They really, really believed that Zeus and Hermes came down in the form of men and was blessing them. Look at, look at verse 13. This is how we know they were serious. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, remember this is a, this is a Hellenized population, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowd. So the high priest of Zeus, he gets, we don't know how many oxen, the, the prize bulls, right, drapes them in garland. They're, they're adorned to be, to be sacrificed to these two gods that had come down from heaven to them. Now, I, don't, I won't go into too much detail. 
there's context here for this. In, in Ovid's Metamorphes, book eight, they actually believed that, that Zeus and Hermes came down in the area of Phrygia, which was just to the north. And in this story, in this myth, the uh, Zeus and Hermes came down and only two people, one couple, uh, Bacchus and Philemon, worshipped them as God. They, they received them with hospitality and worship. And according to the story, Zeus and Hermes got so angry that these people in, um, in, in Phrygia did not worship them that they destroyed the entire region and all the people except Bacchus and Philemon with a flood. So the priest says, oh my goodness, I know what to do. We need to get bulls and we need to worship them. And that's why Luke says at the very end of 13, the priest wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. It couldn't just be the priest. It had to be everybody. And so the whole gathering there, they don't want to make the same mistake their neighbors to the north made and have Zeus and Hermes destroy them with a flood. Now, living in the postmodern era, we, we hear this, we think, that's so silly, and I would argue that's so sad. Right? We'd say, this is, this is just, this is antiquated thought. But, but I would argue that in light of what they saw, the miracle that took place, they were far closer to a right evaluation of what happened than many modern, postmodern secular minds would have been today. They knew it was a miracle, they just didn't know who did the miracle. And so they fall back onto the only gods they knew. They said it must be Zeus and it must be Hermes. In other words, my beloved, they had faith too, but just in the wrong gods. And, I, and I, I would argue this. The problem throughout human history has never, ever been a lack of faith. It's never been a lack of faith. Everyone has faith in someone or something. Every single person, even the most staunch atheist in your life that you know that says there is no God, well, they make that statement based upon what presupposition? That they cannot, using the empirical method, prove that there is a God. Well, then that becomes what? The empirical method, naturalism, becomes their God. They can't go any deeper. Everyone's faith is grounded in a ground zero. Some presupposition of some kind that all truth comes from, regardless of what you believe. Now, the Christian, we start with God revealing himself truthfully in human history. We start with God revealing specifically himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the word of God made flesh. He is the truth of God made flesh so that we might know him. That we might know him and we might be loved by him. Paul was correct in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He said, the natural person cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are spiritually discerned. He cannot. The natural person cannot understand who God is or how to get to God. But the Christian is no longer just a natural person. If you are a Christian, you've been born again. And the Holy Spirit now dwells in you. And therefore, you can know God and you have access to God in Christ. And therefore, I would argue it's right. It's right for us to expect of one another, those who truly have faith in the living God, it's right for us to expect each other to know God and to worship God properly. Not making the same mistakes that that crowd in Lystra made trying to sacrifice to Zeus and Hermes. The question for us this morning is, do we worship well, as well as the Lystrans did? Do we worship as well as they did? Um, they truly believed the gods had come down from heaven, and therefore they rushed to bring these prize bowls to the altar and sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. 
I would argue that if you really believe that God the Father sent God the Son in the flesh, if you really, really believe that, that God came down from heaven in order to bless us with life, eternal life, then your life will be one filled with worship too. That that will be the disposition of your heart. And that you will want to, with heart, mind, soul, and strength, every moment of every day, desire to glorify and worship this God-man, Jesus Christ. As an employee, you want to work hard. As a husband, you want to cherish and protect your wife. As a wife, you want to honor your husband. As a child, listen, children, you want to obey your parents. If you truly know the Lord, as a member of the local church, you want to serve faithfully as an active member. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, you want to make disciples. As an evangelist, you want to share the gospel. All these things you'll want to do from your heart because you now know this God-man, this God who came down from heaven and made himself known to us. If you truly believe the God-man came down from heaven and had mercy on you, you will strive to this end. You'll strive to this end. But a sinner saved by grace, we know that will not work out perfectly during our sojourn here on earth. Right? There are times, there are times when we'll have a tendency to default to whatever god or idol we used to worship before we knew Christ, right? So those in Lystra, they default to Zeus and Hermes. You probably will not default to those idols. I don't imagine many of you are, are rushing to grab a bull and sacrifice it on an altar in order to pay homage to one of those gods. But I would argue there are other idols and gods in your life that you might struggle with. If, for example, before you came to a saving grace in Jesus Christ, materialism, the wanting and the possessing of things is, is what really got you up out of bed during the day, then I would argue that when crisis comes, you get a, a broken relationship, you lose your job, maybe you're sick or a loved one is sick, you might find yourself not running to Zeus or Hermes, but finding yourself running to a local store or maybe just Amazon, because that's where you're going to get that fix of worship. If your spouse, listen closely, if your spouse or your children or your grandchildren were your ultimate source of joy and love before you came to a saving grace in Jesus Christ, then you might want to look closely. When you find yourself discouraged or downcast or depressed or lonely, you might find yourself turning to your spouse, your children, or grandchildren before you turn to whom? Your first love, Jesus Christ. If before you put your faith in Christ, you put your faith, God forbid, in our Republican democracy, or the public schools, or maybe your stock portfolio. Um, when things get difficult, you may be looking to politicians or, or your books or your finances to find joy. Um, my beloved, this is simple. Just because we are not sacrificing bulls decorated in garland before an altar does not mean that we do not struggle with the sin of idolatry. It's real for us, too. The words of Isaiah still ring true. Listen with all your might. Isaiah 44, all who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Okay, so absolute foolishness to create an idol to worship a false god. We see that here. We think it's silly here, but we do the same thing on a daily basis in our own lives. You were created in the image of God, and therefore you were created to worship God. It's natural to worship. It's in your DNA as an image bearer. 
Those in Lystra were responding naturally to what they had seen take place. They weren't questioning, does God exist? They were just putting their worship in the wrong God. Christian, you must fight idolatry daily. You must fight against all those desires that you have to find your purpose or your satisfaction or your joy. Listen, in anyone or anything else other than Jesus Christ, you must fight. And it is a fight. And that means being diligent. It means having brothers and sisters come alongside you and help you see these things. It means recognizing them and confessing them and then turning from them, turning away from the Zeuses and the Hermes in your life and turning to the living God. Now you say that might sound obvious. It is for the Christian, and yet we don't do it all that well. We don't do it well, but we need to. There's danger here. Um, Anything, anything that competes with your ultimate affection for God is a false God. Anything. And usually it's the blessing, it's the good things that God gives us that we make ultimate that are the most dangerous. Right? You say, well, if I, if I turn to alcohol or, or drug abuse or sexual addiction, if I turn to those things, well, of course that's an idol, of course. But it's the subtle things that trip us up because they're given to us by God and we make them bigger than we should. So it's a faith issue always, always. Number one then, we've seen a healing faith, I pray. Number two, a foolish faith, which we do not want. And I'll give you one more, a personal faith. And as I said at the beginning, I'm not talking about your personal faith in Jesus Christ. I'm talking about faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, heard that the people were actually preparing to sacrifice bulls to them because they thought they were gods, it says they tore their garments. That, you probably noticed that was a first century expression of internal grief and sorrow. They tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd crying out, look at verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? Why are you trying to worship us as though we are gods? We, are our, we also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news. They're saying, listen, we're not Zeus and we're not Hermes. We're not superheroes of any kind. We are sinful men suffering sinful affliction just like you. So he puts them all on the same playing field. They didn't come as gods but they didn't come empty-handed. you notice that? He says, we're not gods. We're the same nature as you. Oh, but by the way, we bring you good news. What was the good news? In the Greek, it's literally the word we use for evangelize. The good news was the gospel. He said, we're not gods. We're not Zeus. We're not Hermes. We're sinful men just like you, but we bring you the good news of Jesus Christ. We bring you the good news that, listen, that the real God of heaven sent his son in the flesh so that we might know him. He says, you, you guys are worshiping false gods as though they are men, and the good news is that the real God sent his son as a man that we might know him and be healed by him and be made well by him. Paul and Barnabas had come to Lystra as witnesses, witnesses to, listen, to the fact that God the Father sent God the Son in time, in human history, as a man to earth, to man. That's an objective, historical, absolute. It's not a philosophy. It's not a mythology. It's not an idea about God that's been conjured up for 2,000 years and cooked up in a book. This is objective reality. This is truth. So listen, it wasn't Hermes, the son of Zeus, 
who came down from Mount Olympian with a message of hope. It was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father, who came down from the highest heavens with the message of hope. What was that message? You can know God and you can have God. You can know who God is and you can have access to God, Christ says, through me, the divine messenger. So first and foremost, this this story is utterly profound because what Paul is saying to them is that you're, you're worshiping the wrong gods thinking they came as a man. And I'm telling you right now that the one true living God has come as a man that we might know God, that we might really know him. In other words, the answer that everybody's had for centuries that maybe many of you still have right now, and I pray by the end of this sermon you won't have it, who is God has been answered by God definitively, once and for all, in the person, Jesus Christ. That's worth at least one amen. Can I get that? Who is God? God is known through His Son, Jesus Christ. I don't want want it to be any less binary than that. Jesus, before His ascension, He's teaching in John 14. He says, I got to go, and and by the way, you're all going to follow me. And you remember the great conversation with Thomas. John 14, Thomas said to Him, Lord, We don't know where you're going. So you're going somewhere. You're going to ascend into heaven. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then listen to what Jesus said, John 14, 6. He said, you know this. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way. And then he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What is he talking about? Christ is saying, you want to know the Father? You want to know the Father? If you know me, you know the Father. The Father and I are what? We are one. We are one. The Father had made himself known, listen, perfectly through his son, Jesus Christ. That question should not exist anymore in human history. It grieves my heart that we still ask who God is. God has been revealed perfectly in the son, Jesus Christ, so that we can be set free from the stupidity of this question and all the vain idols that we worship, all the Zeuses and all the Hermes and all the things we turn to instead of God himself. My beloved, as I was reviewing this last night, this is not in my notes, but what more do you want God to do? How much more do you want God to reveal himself? God said, I'm going to send my son who is also God to earth in the flesh, so you man can talk to a man who's also God and therefore know me. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what else we can ask of God. If we ask of anything more than that, it would be less than that, would it not? There is no greater revelation that God could have made other than his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is proclaiming to the Lystrans here. Look at, look at the latter part of verse 15. He said, you should turn from these vain things. What are they? They're gonna kill a nice, innocent bull in order to worship a false god in the form of men who are just men. He said, turn from these vain things, these mythological gods who have no power to save and no power to heal, and turn what? To the living God. Verse 15, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Oh, so Paul's talking now about a monotheistic god, not multiple gods. He's saying, no, this one god, he's the creator of everything. Everything that you can see, even the things you cannot see, this God that I'm talking about, he made. You see, in the, in the Greek pantheon, their little gods, all their gods, their false gods, had their little, their little niches in creation. So Zeus, for example, he was the god of the skies. 
Hermes was the, the god of word or messenger. He was also, by the way, Hermes was also the god of roads and boundaries. Isn't that weird? Just really weird. Uh, Poseidon, you know, he was the god of the sea. Um, Hera was the god of women and family. And, and Paul's saying, listen, all that's nonsense because none of them are real. The God I'm telling you about is real. He's the living God, and he is the creator of everything. He's not just the one of the sky or the sea or families and women. He is the one true living God. And then he says, and this is what makes the revelation so utterly profound, he said, and he's made himself perfectly known in the person, Jesus Christ. You can know the living God. You can know the creator of all that is seen and unseen in the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so that's why you heard Kirk read, if there was one verse for this entire sermon, it would be Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is what? He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is fully, truly, 100% God. So you want to know God? Know Christ. You want to know God the Father? Know Christ. You want to know God the Son and God the Holy Spirit? Know Christ. The Lystrans had heard stories of their gods coming down in the form of men. What a shock it must have been to hear Paul and Barnabas saying, oh, that's not completely untrue. Your version is untrue, but the real story is that God did in fact come down as a man. How incredible that they, they heard this and then, and then many believed that, oh yes, now we can know this God and now we have access to this God. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, it's a verse that we, I think we should spend a lot more time meditating on. Matthew eleven twenty-seven. 27, write that down. Jesus said, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You know what that means, my beloved? You can't know God the Father unless the Son reveals him to you. You say, well, why is that the case? Well, God the Father who is God knows God the Son because he's God. God the Son who is God knows God the Father because he is God. They are of the same nature, so they know each other perfectly. Mankind, sinful man, cannot know God like that unless God the Son makes them known, brings us in, shows us God through himself. And that's why you think, well, why do you guys always talk so much about Jesus Christ? It's always about Christ. Our entire faith begins and ends with Jesus Christ. Why? Because we cannot know God the Father unless God the Son, the God-man, shows us to him. I can't worship the Father apart from the Son. I can't even know who the Father is apart from the Son. I'll be grabbing a bowl and bowing down to Zeus and Hermes unless the Son makes him known, and he did how he became a man so that he could reveal his Father, God the Father, man to man. Mono y mano, man to man, man to woman. We can know God in Christ because he is God and he became a man and we can have that understanding. It's so profound. I'm so excited that we are gonna have this month to celebrate the incarnation of the God-man Jesus Christ because fundamentally, that's how we know who God is. Can't know him apart from Christ. Listen to what Luther said. Luther said, I have no God, whether in heaven or in earth, and I and I know of none outside the flesh that lies in the bosom of the Virgin Mary. He said, for elsewhere, God is utterly incomprehensible. Outside of Jesus Christ, God is utterly incomprehensible, but comprehensible in the faith of Christ alone. 
That's so true. We don't know God apart from Christ, but in Christ we can know God because God revealed himself perfectly in the God-man, in the Son, so that idol worshipers like us can stop asking the stupidest question man has ever asked, who is God? That is the worst question because God has made himself known. God has made himself known in Jesus Christ. We can truly know him, and because we can know him, oh, my beloved, it means we can be loved by him. Listen to what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer. He said, oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, Jesus said what? I know you. And then he said this, I made known to them your name. So Christ says, I I who am God, I've made known to these people who you are because he is God. And then he said this, I will continue to make it known why that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. That's earth shattering. The love that God the Father has for God the Son may be in you too. This, my beloved, is what distinguishes the Christian faith from all other faiths. We don't start with ideas about God. We don't start with philosophies. We don't start with mythologies, Zeus, Hermes, Poseidon. We don't start with Buddhism. We don't start with spiritism. We don't start with science. We don't start with science. We start with God as he has objectively revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ in real space and time. That's where we start. That's how we know who God is through his son, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and then we work out from there. Everything starts with Christ. Everything starts with the cross. The, uh, the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he put it like this. He said, Jesus, the God-man, appears in history no longer as an idea, but as the word of God become flesh. And then he said, therefore, there is no longer any possibility of assimilating him into the order of human logos, into all their philosophies or religions. He doesn't fit. He is the word of God. And then Bonhoeffer says, the only real question which now remains is, who are you? Speak for yourself, God. Who are you? Tell us. You've come as a man. Tell us, which Christ did. Do you remember in John chapter 10 at the Feast of Dedication? Do you remember they, the, the Jews, they want to know. And so they ask him this. Uh, this is John 10, verse 24 and following. The Jews gathered around Jesus and they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? They're asking what? Who are you? Who is God? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus at this point thinking, wow. I've spent good two years now telling you plainly. But he answers them. Verse 25, Jesus answered them. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. He says, I told you, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe that I and the Father are what? One. He says, I've been teaching this now. All the miracles testify to it. I am God. See me, Christ is saying, and you will see the Father. So Christ saying, I am God. See me and you see the Father. So Paul and Barnabas are are saying the same thing to these people, that this God-man, Jesus Christ, had come down from heaven to make the Father known. And so they're without excuse now. Right Before Paul and Barnabas showed up, they could go and worship their their false gods and not know any better. But now, now they know better. Now they know better. Look at verse 16. Paul says to the crowd in verse 16, in past generations he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. 
he allowed the idolatry. He allowed the pagan worship. He didn't destroy them, though, because grace was coming. And then he says in verse 17, yet Paul continues, he did not, God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. And you know what Paul's saying there? He said, listen, you've been worshiping false gods and pagan gods for centuries now, but God being infinitely gracious and merciful, he didn't destroy you. And the fact that you're here today, he tells you why he didn't destroy you. He has revealed himself as a merciful God, bringing common grace, bringing rain for your harvest, for your fruit to make your heart happy. But now here's the greatest gift of all is being revealed to those in Lystra. The greatest gift was not the rain or the fruits that make their hearts happy. It was his son, Jesus Christ, to make them ultimately happy. In other words, Paul's saying your ignorance and your rebellion is over. No more excuses. You now know better. The living God has made himself known through Christ, and Christ has made God accessible through the cross. You see, in becoming a man, the Son of God makes the Father known, and by going to the cross in our place, the Son of God makes God accessible. I mean, it would, <clears throat> I would argue it wouldn't be a great thing just to know who God is and not have God. In fact, that would be even worse, would it not? Here's this God, glorious and majestic, beautiful and loving, full of grace and mercy. Oh, and you can't have him. That would be terrible. So God the Father through Christ not only reveals himself, but he says, and now you can come to me through Jesus. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, listen. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might what? That he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. He suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Why? To take you who are dead in your sins and transgressions, dead in your flesh, and make you alive so that he can bring you to his Father with him. Oh, that's the great end, is it not? By becoming a man and living the life of the faithful son, the life that we were supposed to live but did not, doing God's will perfectly in love, He lived the life of the faithful son. He was the the better Adam. He was the true Israel. And then by going to the cross and giving his life in our place as a substitute, he enables, by paying for our debts, he enables the Father to not only forgive us of our sins, but then through grace and mercy, what? Bring us into the family too. So we become sons and daughters. The son enables us to become sons and daughters in this glorious love relationship Father, son, father, daughter, you're adopted. You're adopted. First John chapter 1, verse 12, to all who receive Jesus, to all who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Now, if I have said nothing that's had any impact on you, I want that to resonate right now. By faith in Jesus Christ, you have been given the opportunity to become a son of God or daughter of the living God. Apart from Christ, you are a child of wrath, steep in your sin, awaiting judgment. But in Christ, you're not just forgiven of your sins, you're not just saved out of the darkness, you are made a son or daughter in the kingdom. And you know what that means? My beloved, okay. The same love the Father has for the Son and has for eternity, you can have too. The same filial, eternal, infinite, glorious mind-bending, heart-shaping love, you can have by faith in the God-man, Jesus Christ.
Christ. John 17 again, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, speaking of his church, that they may be one even as we are one. And then he said this, I and them and you and me, you see the intimacy and the community that they may become perfectly one so that the world might know that you sent me and what? And love them even as you loved me. My beloved, there's no greater love, there's no higher love, there's no more powerful love than the love the Father has for the Son. And Christ is saying by grace through faith, you can have that same love too. Now see, you're not excited enough, I can tell this is not resonating because we hear it so much. God loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And yet that gets in, it doesn't get in. God doesn't just love you because you were created in his image. By grace through faith in Jesus Christ, God loves you as he has loved the Son from eternity past. I could talk for the duration of my life and not get close to that. God loves you by grace through faith in the Son as he has loved the Son for eternity. It's an infinite, eternal, everlasting Unimaginable love. So by becoming a man, Jesus, being God, was able to communicate God to us, to make God known. And by dying as a man, Jesus was able to join us through faith to the love of his Father. This is what the God-man came to do so that you can enjoy the same relational intimacy. So that when you pray to God, Abba, Father, you're praying as a son or you're praying as a daughter. And he loves you like that. My beloved, I'll tell you honestly, I love my sons in such a deep way I could not describe it to you. I love my grandchildren that exact same way. I'm a sinful, reprehensible, fallen man. And yet if you came to me and said, I want you to love me as much as you love your son, I said, that's a profound love. How much more God the creator? How much more? Infinitely more. That's life-changing. That is the... That's the pinnacle of man's joy. Right? That has to be the pinnacle of it. This magnificent exchange that leads to our being forgiven of our sins and brought out of the darkness and made sons and daughters of God that we might have the love of God the Father as Christ does. That's the heart of the gospel, I would argue. The very heart of the gospel now. It's what makes the good news such good news. We spend a lot of time, and it's right, to talk about the holiness of God the depth of our sin and the need to be forgiven and repentance and faith and the crucifixion of Christ. You know those are all mediatorial in nature. Those are all just getting us to the end. That isn't, the heart of the gospel is you and God forever and ever in that love, that Trinitarian, saturated, eternal love. That's it. In fact, I don't want anything less. I want to go really big on this. I want my eternity to be with God, having the love that God the Father has for the Son for me and for you and for all who repent and believe. Anything less, I think, would be diminishing the glory of God. Calvin wrote about this great exchange, Christ for you, so that you might have God. He said, this is the wonderful exchange that by becoming Son of Man with us, He has made us sons of God with him that by his descent to earth he has prepared an ascent for us to heaven. That by taking on our mortality he has conferred his immortality upon us. That by accepting our weakness 
he has strengthened us by his power that by receiving our poverty into himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. And then he says that by taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, he has clothed us with the righteousness of God. Why? So that we can have God. Unbelievable. Because the metaphysical God became physical in the God-man, Jesus Christ, you don't have to wonder and ask anymore, who is God? Don't ask such a foolish question. You don't need to ask. You don't need to create a mythology like the Greeks did. You don't have to have false gods to make sense of the universe. You don't have to run to gods or idols anymore because we know who God is. The right question, my beloved, of who God is, the answer is Jesus Christ. That's how we know. The Father had answered that perfectly so that we can know him and be saved by him through faith. Luke tells us in verse 18, and I'll close, even with these words, those who are listening, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. I pray that our response this morning to this passage is not like these people. I pray that we don't hear these words that we can be saved by grace through faith in Christ and brought into the love relationship the Father has for the Son and then turn to the vain idols in our lives anymore that instead we crucify them, we turn to Christ and we live. I pray that we are very much like this crippled man who was healed by the power of the Holy Spirit with a childlike faith, healed spiritually and healed physically so that he could what? So that he could worship well so that he could worship as a follower of God. I pray that we will hear this and then say and mean what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen? All right, let's pray. Hmm. Heavenly Father, I pray you would forgive me for being unable to communicate clearly the degree of this love that you have for us in Christ. I cannot. I cannot. I ask, Lord, that you would be gracious by your Spirit and that you would communicate that to each soul here. That we would see the foolishness of putting our faith in anyone or anything other than Christ alone. Show us, Father, clearly that by knowing Christ we can know you, that you made yourself known perfectly through Christ. And show us, Father, that through Christ we can have you, that we can be redeemed out of this darkness and, and made new. I pray above all else, Father, that you would reveal the very heart of the gospel, and that is in our redemption through Christ we can experience the same love that you have for Christ in us, that we can have that, we can enjoy it, and as a result, we can walk in obedience and love too, that we can worship you well, now and forever. Make that love known to us at a deep level, deeper than we had coming in this morning, Father, that you might encourage us even this day to press on toward your Son. He's worthy of it. In his name I pray, amen.